Hey everybody, welcome back to Dark Haunting Histories and Ghosts, and if this is your first time here, I hope you like it, and I hope you listen to it all, and come back for more. If you hated it, let me know, I'll link my Twitter below, so you can, you know, either send that you liked it, or that you hated it, or what you think I can improve on. Um, I want to give a shout out to SpookyScotland.net, because on their webpage I found a story called The Glencoe Massacre. Now, in Scotland this is a big deal, here in America you don't hear about it. So when I found it and read into it, I was astonished. I looked at pictures of the area. It is absolutely so beautiful. And I know Scotland in general is incredibly beautiful, but there was just something about this glen that I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like, you know, my soul recognized it. I don't know. That might sound stupid, but it is what it is. Judge me or not. I don't care. Now, before we get started into the sad tale, I want to thank Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has been a huge help. Um, I tried to start off initially with a YouTube channel, but I hated seeing myself on screen and I got really uncomfortable. So one of my employees told me, you know, you should try podcasting. I think you'd like that a lot better. So I wanted to try podcasting, but I had no idea, you know, what to do. So I tried to upload, but then it was asking for this RSS link. I'm almost 40. I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. But then I stumbled across Buzzsprout. Now, Buzzsprout walked me through, you know, the startup, every single part of it, and has taught me, you know, how to grow my channel and how to reach out to people, and how to really make this, you know, grow as fast as it has. And I'm not saying I have a million, you know, downloads at the moment, but I started only a couple weeks ago, and I have more than I thought I was going to have. So, thank you, Buzzsprout. If any of you are interested in potentially starting a podcast, just to talk about, you know, something that you're interested in, to people who might be interested in the same things as you... You know, I really think that Buzzsprout is the place for you. You know, you don't have to worry about people's eyes glazing over or all of that fun stuff. So, I'm going to link the link to Buzzsprout down below. So, if you're interested, you know, go there and, you know, just check it out. See See what you think. See if it'll help you. Because, who knows, we may be able to you know, form our own little clans, I guess, of, you know, get a group together of people who are interested in the same things and who are on the same level. And if Buzzsprout can teach this old dog new tricks, I guarantee that most of you will find it super, super easy. So check it out. Now let's get in um, to the actual massacre now that we have already passed the love pouring of Buzzsprout. Um, now, Glencoe, like I said, is one of the most spectacular areas of unspoiled wilderness in Scotland. There is a haunting quality about this moor-clad mountains that stand as sentinels over 
the eight-mile-long glen, which runs from east to west along the northern border of Argyle. And there are those who say that the glen is haunted. And if any place is going to be haunted, I would say this glen should, you know, should be allowed it. Glen Coe is called the Glen of Weeping, the site of one of the greatest atrocities in Scottish history. Even at the best of times, Scotland has a grim and dark history. But murder has always been considered the foulest of crimes in Scots law. But in the Highlands, with its strict code of hospitality, there is even more, even more heinous crime. And that's called murder under trust. And that's why the massacre of Glencoe has re- reverberated so strongly through the ages and why the spirits of the slain MacDonald clansmen are said to return to the Glen of Weeping every year on the anniversary of that fateful day, which was the 13th of February, 1692. The MacDonalds of Glencoe was once a force um, within the clan system itself. At one time, the chief of Clan MacDonald had held the title Lord of the Isles. This title had emerged from a hybrid of Viking and Gaelic rulers, and although they swore allegiance to the kings in Norway, Ireland, and Scotland at various times, they remained functionally independent for centuries. King James IV of Scots stripped the Lord of Isles um, title in 1493, and by the 17th century, the MacDonalds were only bit players, meaning they weren't very powerful at all. Now, they were still full of pride and heritage, but really not much else. Their lands and their titles had been systematically removed and given to their neighbors, the Campbells. Now, the Campbells were a wily and politically savvy band who were Highland at heart, but were equally at home uh, fraternizing with the lowland nobility. Now, there's this rivalry between the Highlanders and the Lowlanders. Like, one always thinks they're better, you know, than the other. It's kind of like the Raiders versus the Broncos, although the Broncos are better, so we win. Um, Now, the feud between the Clan Campbell and the Clan uh, MacDonald was at least utilized, if not fully, orchestrated by the British government. Now, they did that to maintain a balance of power between the clans, because if you could get all of the clans to get along, obviously they would become more powerful. Now, the MacDonalds of Glencoe, or the MacLeans, as they were more specifically known, were a small branch of the clan Donald. Glencoe had been home to MacDonald since the early 14th century, when they supported Robert the Bruce, Braveheart. Now, unlike the Campbells, the Maclean's had no titles, they had no lands, and the Campbells were technically their landlords. Now, at the time of the massacre, the chief of the McDonald's of Glencoe was Alistair uh, McLean. McDonald's, also known as just the McLean. He had a rather imposing appearance. A huge man with a flowing white beard, he had a mustache, and he was very much an old-school Highland chief. He was well-respected by his own clan and feared by others. Now, he had two sons. He had John, who was married to a MacDonald of Glencoe, and the younger son, Alistair, married to a Campbell, who 
led the company of soldiers into Glencoe to do the government's dirty work. Now, the McLeans were by no means angels. They were kind of pains in the asses to the Campbells, to be truthful. They carried out cattle thieving or cattle reaving. I'm actually pretty sure that um, my Scottish heritage, because I'm half Sicilian and half Scotch-Irish and English, um, they were cattle reavers. They were sent to the plantation Ulster and this whole thing. But So I kind of feel a kinship to them because... My family's always been super ornery, so I kind of, you know, I kind of like them. Now, uh, they were constantly in trouble with the law. We're not constantly in trouble with the law, little side note. <laughs> we're just mouthy. And with their neighboring clans, especially the Campbells, because there was this quirk in Scott's law that made the landlord liable to pay for any losses incurred by their tenants' cattle rustling. So if... You know, the McLeans are going out and stealing all these people's cattle. That bill is landing on the Campbell's doorstep. So they're not too excited about this. So there was little love lost between the Clan Donald and Clan uh, Campbell. Now it's easy to assume that the massacre at Glencoe was just another clan skirmish because those happened all the time. Yet Glencoe was so much more than this. It was a planned and premeditated murder an elimination of an entire community by government soldiers. Now think of that for a minute. Government soldiers went there with the specific purpose of eliminating an entire community. Not just the menfolk, no, everybody. A double deal with the Campbells in the 17th century Scotland was steeped in religious conflict, where a person's identity was determined by their faith. And in a lot of areas, it still is. Now, luckily in America, I haven't really had to deal with that. I know after 9-11, there was, you know, Christians versus Muslims, and each looked at each other, you know, with suspicion. I'm not very religious. I'm more spiritual, so organized religion, I've never really understood. But it's caused a lot of grief. Now especially in the 17th century Scotland, okay? Because um, their identities were determined by their faith. When James the, <clears throat> excuse me, the seventh began to reinstate Catholics into key offices. Now keep in mind, James the seventh of Scotland was James the second of England, okay? And he was one of the first Catholic kings in power after the reformation of King Henry VIII. So even down in England, all hell was breaking loose and people were not okay with this, okay? So he began to reinstate Catholics into key offices. There was a Protestant backlash, obviously, which led to the Glorious Revolution of 1688. And that is where a bunch of noblemen wrote to William of Orange and his wife Mary and invited them to basically invade England and Scotland and take over and kick James out. Uh, James was defeated and he fled to France and the shelter of Louis the 14th. His Protestant daughter and her husband William of Orange were placed on the thrones of Scotland and England. King James's supporters known as Jacobites rose in his defense. 
and they rose at Killy Cranky and Dunk Dunkeld. Now, once again, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced these. I'm doing my best. Hopefully, you know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, in Scotland, and then the Battle of Boyne in Ireland. Many of the clan chiefs were Jacobite sympathizers and could command large companies of fighting men should the need arise. Now think of the, you know, the Highlander vision. You know, even the Romans didn't want to mess with the Highlanders. They were like, no, we're good. And I'm not talking about, you know, Duncan MacLeod or the Clan MacLeod. I'm talking about weathered, badass, hardcore fighters. I've always kind of looked up to them. They're just tough as nails. Um, the Highland clans were not high on William of Orange, Orange's list of priorities because at this time, he was fighting the uh, French in Flanders. So also during this time, I think in one of my previous podcasts, we talked about Belgium and the Spanish Inquisition and William of Orange fighting the Spanish and the French because they're trying to take over this area. So this is also during this time. So he's a busy dude. Now, he offered indemnity to any of the Highland chiefs who would change their allegiance in the form of a shared 12,000 pound bribe. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't that every clan chief got $12,000. It was $12,000 flat, and then they had to basically fight it out to figure out how much each one was going to get. Are you going to do it based on how large your clan is? Are you going to do it, you know, equally? Are you going to fight to the death? I mean, they had to figure it out. Now, the man used as the king's emissary was John Campbell of Breadalbane. A slippery and complex dude. Now, in 1691, he sent out a summons to the Jacobite leaders, including MacLean and Glencoe, to come to Uckelater Castle, where he put forward William of Orange's proposals. And it soon became apparent that MacLean was not going to get on board, and he wasn't going to get any of the bribe money. Bredobane implied that his share of the money was going to be used to pay off his thieving debts because Brettlebane is a Campbell and he's pissed that he owes all this money because the McLeans just keep stealing people's cattle. However, things took a strange twist. Brettlebane's true alliance became apparent as he revealed a second treaty. Brettlebane proposed that if James II came back with the French army, then the oath to William and Mary... Uh, would be torn up and they would automatically back James again. This almost satisfied the chiefs, but they wanted permission to sign the treaty from the exiled King James. King William had assured them there would be dire consequences for those who didn't sign this by the 1st of January 1692. A letter was drafted and sent covertly to James in France. While the deadline for the signing uh, the oath marched towards them and, you know, they started running out of time. Now, this began a chain reaction of events that would finally culminate in the massacre of Glencoe. Now, John Dalrymple of Stair, sounds like a douchebag, the man who would ultimately give the death order on the clan uh, folk of Glencoe, and he was master of stairs. He was a dominant force in the Scottish Parliament. He had served as Secretary of State for Scotland under King James, 
but it, he played his cards right, and he played a pivotal role of bringing about the ascension of King William. And to reward him, King William made him Lord Advocate, and in 1691 made him Joint Secretary of State for Scotland. Stair was a cold bastard, and he was calculating. And he had his own agenda. He wanted to be the sole person in power. Stair was a lowlander, and he deeply despised Highlanders. He considered them to be rebellious savages. News reached him of Brettlebane's double dealing, and he was determined to make an example of one of the rebel clans. Now, if he could just, you know, show what would happen to at least one of these clans, he was hoping that the rest would just kind of fall in line. So, he sent government troops to Fort William long before the deadline was reached. Now, he did that in, in anticipation of at least one of the chieftains defaulting and not signing, you know, the treaty. When King James realized that he was not going to get any armed support from the French king, because, you know, the French king still trying to fight off the, the Spanish, um, he basically wrote a, you know, a note to the clan chieftains and told them, hey, look, there's no way I'm going to get help. Please switch your alliance to King William. Now, and I think that's actually pretty cool of him. You know, he could have just, you know, you know, pulled them along with him. But no, he said, go ahead and transfer your allegiance. Now, this message reached Edinburgh on the 21st of December, 1691. Time was running out for the Highland Chiefs. The message was sent to Athol and was then sent on to Glengarry. Now, Glengarry was kind of an asshole, and he detained the messenger for several days. Now, mind you, time is of the freaking essence, and this dude's going to lock up the messenger for several days. He's leaving the chiefs of Loch Lyle and Capoc with only 24 hours to sign the treaty, meaning that Glencoe was up Shit's Creek without a paddle completely, because there was no way Glencoe was going to reach the sheriff of Inver Inveray in time. McLean seemed to know he wouldn't have time to sign the treaty, so he rode hell for leather to Fort William. He met with Colonel John Hill, um, and John Hill was the governor of the fort who signed the letter stating that, you know, that McLean had arrived within the agreed upon time frame, and he came to sign his allegiance. However, the colonel still sent him to Inveray. McLean now had to cut across his rival Campbell lands to get there. Of course, he was arrested. He was detained by Campbell Redcoats. I mean, he was eventually released thanks to Hill's letter, but, man, he spent... He wasted time there. He finally made it to Inveray on the 2nd of January, 1692. But the Sheriff Colin Campbell was not even there. Now, he's a day late, a dollar short. But he's hoping that this letter from Colonel Hill is going to help him out. Now, eventually, Campbell returned and accepted McLean's signature. McLean returned to Glencoe thinking everything was going to be alright, and his mad dash had saved their asses. But unfortunately, 1692 was not going to be their year. A packet with all the signatures arrived in Edinburgh in mid-January. The Privy Council decided to be dicks, and they removed McLean's name. 
from the list due to some stupid ass bureau you know bureaucratic technical fault now lord advocate dollary whatever was over the moon his sadistic ass had finally found somebody that he can make an example of he wrote just now my lord argyle tells me that glencoe hath not taken the oath at which i rejoice Several other chiefs had not come in to sign the oath, but they were way too powerful, and Dalrymple, I'm bound to determine to try to figure out how to say that, was like a chicken shit, like most bullies are, and he didn't have the balls to move against them, because he didn't want to write this check that his ass couldn't cash by causing a massive Highlander uprising. So the Master of Stair decided to pick on the little guy, the McLeans. He said that this was the proper season to maul them. The massacre was an act of official fuckery, I mean policy, conceived by Dalrymple and executed by a Scottish commander-in-chief and approved by the, the king and then carried out by a regiment of the British army. The Argyle Regiment was deliberately chosen by Dalrymple knowing the you know the rivalry between the two clans or the hatred between the two clans and how it would be perceived word was sent to hill at fort william to eliminate the mcdonald's at, of glencoe two officers plan the details you have major dunkinson and lieutenant colonel hamilton on the first of february 1692 two companies of soldiers marched into glencoe and they were led by Robert Campbell of Glen Lyon. He was a captain in the Earl of Argyle's regiment and was a cousin to Breadalbane. At 60 years old, he was basically kind of a loser, and he never made it past captain. He was this heavy drinker, and he was this awful gambler, and he had lost most of his family's inheritance. Historians speculate that this guy was chosen for the job because he was such a loser that no one would really care if he took the blame or even died during it. There's an even more cynical reason. Glen Lyon was related to Glencoe clan chief McLean, and the betrayal would be even more acute, even worse. At first, McDonald's were suspicious seeing these soldiers ride up. But the soldiers assured them that they were on their way to Glengarry, remember the asshole that held the messenger, to forcibly collect um, the unpaid taxes. Their, so you know, their story seemed plausible, and as the weather declined, the soldiers were billeted throughout the Glen um, in the clan's folks' homes. They freaking stayed in their homes, okay? Just think about that. So all these soldiers are going to the clan's people's home. Now originally I thought that they were bastards but I read somewhere that they didn't even know what was gonna happen they had no idea so it was quite a nasty shock for them as well um, now Highland hospitality was a thing of great honor so it's seriously important once somebody was taken under your roof your friendship was sealed so you know, these clans people are looking at these soldiers and they are now considering, you know, we're friends. You've stayed under my roof. I trust you. You trust me. We're good to go. Now, the soldiers stayed with the clansfolk and the, uh, for two weeks. Now, 
I can't even imagine the situation. Now, on the night of the 12th, an order was sent from Major Duncanson to Glenlyon. And it said, You are hereby ordered to fall upon the rebels, the McDonald's of Glencoe, and put all to the sword under 70. You are to have special care that the old fox, which was McLean, and his sons do upon no account escape your hands. The exact time for the killing to begin was 5 a.m. Some two hours before Duncanson and Hamilton were going to arrive. Now, obviously, they did that to make sure that their dirty work would be done by a Campbell and that they wouldn't be somehow tied into it. That night, a blizzard started to howl through Glencoe. As the clan slept, their house guests gathered, and they received their orders. Now, like I said, they didn't know what they are going to do, but could you imagine that moment when they realize that they have to kill the people that they've been hanging out with for, you know, the last 12 days? But still, they set about systematically killing everyone that they could. In the morning, 38 McDonald's lay dead, including their chief, McLean. Many escaped into the hills and found some shelter before, you know, they died of exposure. But, however, many died on the mountainside of exposure, including uh, McLean's wife. Now, once again, as all these really work out, no one can be sure how many died in the hills that day. Estimate... You know, estimates range between 40 to 300. Before nightfall on the 13th of February, some of the survivors ventured down from the mountains to bury their dead. The clan chief and his close family were taken to the McDonald burial ground, and that's on the island of Eileen Mundell on Loch Levin. Others were buried in and around the glen. You would hope that all involved suffered horrible fates and that you know their consciences ate them alive and that the strong hand of revenge you know took hold and they were all horrifically punished but that's not to be Dalry Dalrymple hearing the news that the massacre had not been complete and that two of the sons had escaped was livid he wanted to prove to the king that he was the man to control the highlanders He wrote letters ordering all survivors be hunted down and sent to the plantation Ulster, once again, where my family went, so I don't know how that worked out, or they were to be killed. Luckily, his orders were not carried out. His vengeful and unrepentant attitude was not shared by others, who were horrified at what had happened. Colonel Hill, he also seemed basically indifferent. Even though he knew that McLean wanted to take the oath and he wrote to Lord Chancellor of Scotland in a military report that he had ruined Glencoe among other business. If he had any misgivings, he didn't share them with anybody. Brett O'Bain panicked because he knew that the finger of blame would be pointed directly at him because of a secret treaty. He asked the McDonald's to sign a a document exonerating him. He didn't receive a reply. Glen Lyon was forever haunted by the blood on his hands. At an Edinburgh alehouse, he drowned his sorrows and in a stupor lost the written orders that were sent for that fateful day.
Luckily, journalists picked up the information, and with interest, um, they had it sent to Paris. It was then published in the Paris Gazette, and news of the atrocities spread across to shocked Europe. Now, Europe has a pretty dark history anyway, so you know if you're shocking Europe, you did something really messed up. Charles Leslie, a Jacobite barrister, tabloid pamphleteer, and political protagonist, decided to investigate the episode. Now, he did a really good job. He was meticulous. He collected documentary evidence, he talked to the soldiers, and he recorded eyewitness accounts. Parliament attempted to dismiss his findings as a Jacobite conspiracy theory, right? Fake news. Queen Mary, however, began asking questions. Now, King William was forced to hold an official inquiry. Can you imagine? He's sweating bullets because he knows what happened. He had a hand in it. Um, but the king was not completely exonerated, and so the findings were never published. That's how it works. In 1695, the year following Queen Mary's death, there was another inquiry. Now, the second inquiry went further. It concluded that an act of treason had been perpetrated on the people of Glencoe by their own government. But who was going to be held accountable for the crimes? Nobody, of course. It was decided that a mistake had been made by not accepting Maclean's oath. The king was once again spared from blame, and Dalrymple was judged to have wrongly interpreted the king's wishes. I didn't do it, right? It was that jackass. So, as punishment, he was dismissed from his path, his post as Secretary of State for Scotland. And not long after, through the revolving door of politics, he was back in office. Politics and politicians are inherently evil in my eyes. Like, I, I don't trust a single one. And if somebody were to tell me that they want to get into politics, I think they should just be shipped off to some, somewhere else and make them their problem at this point. Um, honestly, because I can't think of one from a single country that is actually out there for the people. Now, after William's death in 1702, he played a key role in developing the Union of the Crowns. So as planned, only the Fall Guys were punished. So you had Robert Campbell of Glenlyon and the other officers involved that day. They were found guilty of slaughter under trust, which must be really bad because the worst was murder under trust, but now we're using the term slaughter. It's getting thrown around. So, since it was such a big deal, there had to have been some severe penalties. No one even had to stand trial. Can you believe that? Robert the Loser ended up dying of alcoholism. And it was recommended to the king that Major Duncanson and Lieutenant Colonel um, Hamilton should be made to answer questions. But the king, unsurprisingly, declined to act. The answers they would have given would have painted King William with the same bloody brush, so those who were responsible for organizing the murders were pardoned by the king. Uh, one became a colonel, another became a knight, a third a peer, and a fourth in oral, which really is not surprising. Let's go ahead and butter up these people that could, you know, point the blame at William. Now, as for the McDonald's, they returned to their glen, they rebuilt their homes, they resettled their families, John McLean, the eldest of the sons, became the 13th clan chief, and he built his home on the side of his father's house. 
As for those who are treacherously murdered, it is said that they are unable to rest in peace and haunt Glencoe to this day. On the early morning of the 13th of February, on the anniversary of the massacre, a heavy, sad presence of the McDonald's is to be felt most keenly. People have claimed they have actually uh, glimpsed ghostly shadows of fugitive clanmen crouching among the crags, peeking around the trees. Some people have claimed to see the massacre reenacted, or to have heard the plaintive cries of those who have perished. It is said that the atrocity could have been even more extensive were it not for the Koenig of the McDonald's, who was heard wailing on the eve of the Glencoe Massacre. Hearing her cries, some of the clan members took the warning and fled into the mountains. In, the, in Celtic mythology, there are many tales of the washerwoman, or the Binai. Now, these are harbingers of doom, and they come in two varieties. The most well-known is the Banshees, and the not-so-well-known that I can't even pronounce it, the Keoneg. The appearance of a Banshee at a river or stream is an omen of impending violent death. She sings or wails a lament while washing the blood-stained clothes of those about to die. The Keoneg is invisible to the human eye. Her presence is revealed by a heart-stopping wail. She will be heard crying out at a waterfall at night before the calamity overtakes her clan. For 300 years, the Nine of Diamonds in a deck of playing cards has been known as the Curse of Scotland. A number of stories have been proposed to account for this, but perhaps the most persuasive is that the family crest of the Dairy Rumples of Stair contains nine diamonds. Which wouldn't really surprise me at all because he seems like an asshole. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Let me know on my Twitter, and that is at um, hauntingsdark, and I will put the link below. And thank you for listening. Okay, bye everybody.